0: Welcome to PsychPod, a safe space where you can listen to professionals talk about topics, questions and ideas that matter. For our second episode, we have Sanjana Mishra, a psychologist with a Masters in Applied Clinical Psychology from the Tata Institute of Social Sciences, Mumbai. She works at Children's First, New Delhi and is currently pursuing a course on narrative therapy from the Dulwich Centre, Australia. Her interests include looking at the role of social justice in therapeutic spaces, particularly through the lens of gender and sexuality. Aside from research and practice, Sanjana enjoys reading, music, and has a great love for animals. Our topic for today is Inclusivity in Therapeutic Spaces, Gender, Sexuality, and Stereotypes.
1: So let me just
0: start off with the first question. So in terms of gender, sexuality, caste or religion, amongst your experiences, what are the most like some of the common stereotypes present in the younger generation today? So I think those are very
1: broadly different spaces, I think, caste, religion, gender, sexuality, mm-hmm. which generally tend to be put together. But I think something that I've seen also with younger people, with older people is that Stereotypes that existed once that have been there for a long time tend to perpetuate if they're not challenged, you know? So it could be that uh, stereotypes that have existed in the older generation, like women can only do this or trans people are cartoons to be mocked or reservations are ridiculous in some form or manner, like some fairly common stereotypes I'm sure we've all heard. They all exist um in the perceptions of older people as well, in the perceptions of Or much older adults and the perceptions of grandparents, parents, all of that. And I see that they tend to get passed down very often. And they get uh, sort of perpetuated in our own minds and head spaces a lot. And I think those are the ones that also stay with younger people. I don't know if there are any new or unique stereotypes that exist specifically for younger people.
0: Okay, so besides trying to make sense of the world, how do you think stereotypes are developed and why? On one
1: hand, of course, you have the whole like social psychology aspect of it, which talks about social learning, which talks about social categorization, right? Like you said, making sense of the world, sort of using up best of mental resources through creating categories. However, I think, I mean, while of course that makes a lot of sense um, scientifically, I think it's also important to acknowledge the socio-political cultural context that we live in and the kind of um, myths, ideas that it perpetuates within itself that lead to forming more stereotypes for us. Right? So that could mean, of course, on one hand, that social learning and social categorization are being continued. There's no doubt about that. But also, where are stereotypes of misogyny coming in from? Stereotypes that are against queer people, where are they coming from? Those are all perpetuated by the society that we live in. So, acknowledging that, I think, is a major part of what I'm thinking about right now.
0: So, how does the Indian society actually react to people who identify differently? So, I think that's a really interesting question.
1: And, Um, of course, on one hand, again, like, how stereotypes work for people in general is how stereotypes would work for people in India. However... Our cultural context is unique, as I think you pointed out with this question, and we come with a lot of baggage in terms of caste, we come with a lot of baggage in terms of communalism, in terms of regionalism, that can get translated into, uh, you know, our like, get translated into stereotypes. Given our unique cultural context, there are a lot of things that come in very specifically with our culture, right? That come in with communalism, with caste, with regionalism, all these things, and those are just a small part of what we experience. And there's a really interesting acronym that Dr. Chaljasan talks about in her work and her books. It's called Disgraceful. And each of those letters stands for a particular thing. It stands for disability, income, sexuality, gender, race, age, culture, educational measurements, family, usefulness, looks and language. And I know I went through that really fast. But essentially what it looks like is this picture that it paints of how we perceive people what we look at people as through these lenses you know and all these lenses kind of play together to create un- like joint stereotypes and of course they exist separately also like there are separate stereotypes for sexuality or for income or for race for example so I think that is a very nice representation of how it exists in Indian society how
0: so many in- elements intersect and create very unique stereotypes for us. They're all distinct in their own ways but one thing that really binds them is basically separating self and other that's just that's just there like present in all of them
1: absolutely yeah the concept of like them and us is what in a, in a, like essentially comes out with stereotypes most of the time a way to feel better about yourself by othering other people and there's a lot of very interesting research has been done that talks about why stereotypes exist which kind of touches upon this aspect of in groups and out groups And this is sort of the conclusion that they've come to, that you're eventually just trying to feel better about yourself by excluding other people, which is sad. That
0: says so much about us as a society, though. So why do you think it is necessary for us to make space for diversity and not just like in the traditional sense? So
1: one, I think, of course, self-explanatory part of it would be just because there are so many stereotypes that exist, just because there are so many ways in which we can be sort of discriminatory. I think that's one major reason to want to be sort of um, aware of it, to be to create space for it, like you said. Um, another thing I think is just so in context to therapy, I think I can talk about a little more. Why I feel like it's important here also to look at uh, inclusivity in these spaces is because, you know, we don't exist in a vacuum, in a way. Everything that we do, uh, everything that we think about, everything that we believe in strongly... Socially, politically, or just generally. All of these things impact how we are as people. And they obviously also impact how we would be in a therapeutic space. Whether you're a therapist or a client, you're bringing your political beliefs with you into a therapy room. And I think it's uh, kind of ridiculous to pretend that we don't bring in our political beliefs. So, in that regard, also, I think it's important to be aware of biases and stereotypes. Because if you're not aware of them and you're operating from this lens, key, oh, I'm just, oh, I have no stereotypes, I have no biases, I'm totally apolitical then, you know, you're not doing justice to the people that you're working with. You're not doing justice to the people around you. And you can end up being sort of um, inadvertently, maybe prejudiced or stereotype, stereotypical towards people. So how do you uh, remove that bias? Like you're saying that it's important to be aware of the bias that everyone has. But when you speak to a person who's completely different to you, obviously you have a bias, but how do you separate that from what they are telling you? So I think again, like, what research talks about here is that living a totally bias-free existence is not actually possible. Because again, because we've uh, grown up in this society that is uh, structured the way it is, that rewards or punishes people on the basis of who they are and what what they like. Because of that, I think, existing without biases entirely is not possible. But what you're saying about, you know, in the middle of a conversation, how do you maybe uh, stop those biases? I think the reason I brought up awareness was this only, like, The second you find yourself becoming aware of something, you either backpedal from it or you find yourself trying to be more mindful. You find yourself trying to be a little more um, thoughtful in how you're approaching it and how you're talking to people. So let's say you're talking about uh, gender and sexuality specifically and you're someone who's not very comfortable with the idea of, let's say, pronouns. But... In the space of a conversation, let's say someone has told you, okay, I prefer uh, the pronouns they and them instead of the pronouns that you've been referring to me as. In that moment, you being aware of the fact that you're not comfortable with pronouns, you being aware of the fact that you maybe don't really understand why they're saying this, that awareness leads you to maybe be a little more mindful. Of course, it also depends on you know your desire to be mindful. It could also lead to you othering the other person as we spoke about, right? But here we're talking from a point of view of somebody who doesn't want to other another person. Somebody who wants to maybe reach out and uh, make their biases a little lesser. So I think one aspect of it is awareness in that sense. One Another aspect of it is just not feeling challenged if somebody points out your biases. Like while I'm talking or while someone else is talking, someone tells me something I've said is biased or is stereotypical. My response would probably be, you know, I'm not biased or... anyone's response rather would just be like you know I don't think that I'm a biased person I don't know why you're saying this to me but in that moment being able to accept your biases is also a very important part of being able to curb them and then change them
0: so I have another question Mm -hmm. so you spoke about biases and as a therapist as as a counselor as a psychologist how do you how do you like recognize the cultural biases I mean I know that you have to read a lot and you have to like basically learn to identify them, you have to read between the lines. But is it, a, is it ever a challenge for you? For example, in India, for, mm. like queer, pe- queer people are not necessarily well accepted in the traditional sense, right? Mm. For example, if an Indian goes to a therapist or a counsellor mm. who's from a different ethnicity, mm. I mean, of course, they will try their best to understand, but the aspect of culture plays a big role in how we think about ourselves and others, Mm, right?
1: Absolutely. What you said makes a lot of sense that the kind of cultures that we come from inform how we are as people, inform what we do in, let's say, the therapeutic space. I think one thing that is coming to my mind here is where culture itself plays a role alone, like uh, culture in terms of, you know, what we think about as our Indian culture or culture of a specific state or region or anything like that. It plays a role in how we perceive people and how we perceive families and in how we live in our own families. So informing yourself of what it could be, not making assumptions about like, yo, if this person is, let's say, uh, Bengali, then they would live in this way. Whatever biases come to your mind when you think of a particular group of people. Um, being aware of what those biases are, again, coming back to the same thing, coming being aware of what those biases are, being aware of what stereotypes exist by looking at people around you. by And by looking at people around you, I mean looking at the biases that people hold around you. Like maybe your immediate uh, family members, adults that you know about. Where is it that they're coming from? What is it that they're thinking? What is it that they're saying about people? And how has that impacted you? Going back again and then maybe reading more about what role or what the role of culture is in families or the role of culture is in communities. And then eventually bringing it into the therapeutic space. And this of course, like, I'm not saying that, you know, you encounter somebody from a culture that you're unfamiliar with. And within two days, you're familiar with everything and you're able to deal with all of it. It's a long process. It's a process that you undertake over the course of your studying and over the course of your work with clients. And I believe it's a learning process. I would say that even right now. Uh, Or even like 10 years later, maybe I would never say that I'm completely culturally informed. I would say that it is a constant process that we're undergoing. While, of course, there's a lot of really wonderful literature out there that talks about, you know, how to make settings gender inclusive, a couple of very small things that can be really helpful are one, language, using more inclusive language in our everyday practices in something as simple as, let's say, someone coming to your, your therapeutic space and having to fill out an intake form, right? There's a section there for gender. Now, either you have the option of making it super restrictive and making it gender M slash F and letting the person fill it in or making it equally restrictive and othering, making it male slash female slash transgender, which again can be very, very limiting for people or you just leave a blank space there and let people fill in whatever they want to fill in or leave it blank if they want to leave it blank. You know, keeping something as simple as an option out there, something as simple as, you know, not needing to have a prefix before your name, not asking Mr slash Miss in front of uh, whatever name you're writing down. Plus, in the language that you use when you meet a client for the first time, if you're meeting, uh, let's say, a young cis woman, not assuming when you're asking about their, let's say, romantic partners or romantic history that they've been dating men. Something as simple as that, I think, goes a long, long way in making people feel comfortable in opening up about things that they may find it difficult to talk about. Because a lot of the time, the reason, again, that's important to bring up specifically gender and sexuality in therapeutic spaces because there's so much discrimination that's faced especially by uh, young people and by people who identify as a part of the LGBTQ community. There's so much extra stress that comes on whether it's through direct homophobia or whether it's through some other form of very innate prejudice and discrimination that exists, you know. So bringing it into our everyday language, bringing it into our everyday practices in a healthcare setting it's so important to let people feel comfortable enough to talk about what it is that they're dealing with and whether it is that they're dealing with that. And even if they're not dealing with that, maybe someone might walk away or uh, recognizing a different way to talk to people, recognizing a way to be inclusive in their own conversations. So it's just like a win-win situation all around. Along with inclusivity, mm-hmm. I feel like you have to prepare the person for the negative reactions of the outside world right? Because that's never going to stop. There's always going to be that no matter how much progression society makes. So how do you prepare a patient for such a thing? I think, a, again, a big part of that would probably be, in from, from my end, probably acknowledging the fact that this might happen. Because a lot of the time what you're talking about, about how people are negative and how they spoke about how their friends refuse to acknowledge their pronouns and keep calling them she. And, you know, how they were just used to it and they were just constantly correcting people. And in that moment, I felt it was important to bring up that, you know, it wasn't their job to constantly be correcting people and that people needed to often just think for themselves and read for themselves and do their own research before approaching them. And acknowledging that, bringing that into the space that we were sharing led to a lot of really, really empowering conversations with that young person, with their friends. That, I think, is one of the biggest parts of this. Just acknowledging the fact that this exists. Again, I know that a lot of what I'm saying is about, just about being aware and acknowledging, but there is a huge power to all of this acknowledgement that we do. Because we're challenging a lot of the very dominant ideas that exist around us, just by being aware of the fact that there are other ideas.
0: Absolutely, that that does make sense. So, do you think... It is important to educate adolescents beyond the gender binary. I feel like that's something that's really missing today. Absolutely.
1: Like, I believe so strongly that one, we don't have any kind of sexuality education in most schools. Never mind like a comprehensive amount of it. And a huge, huge part of our curriculum needs to be around understanding gender and sexuality. Because it is something that so many people struggle with on some level or the other whether it is in terms of being a part of the LGBTQ community, whether it's a part of um, the stereotypes that exist for cis men and cis women out there, about the very traditional gender stereotypes that we hear about, like boys don't cry and girls only wear pink and girls are gentle and sweet, right? These are things that exist for everyone, everywhere. And I really strongly believe that educating people about gender and sexuality from a young age can play a huge role in, you know, developing sort of an antithesis to that.
0: Yeah, so... Then, what do you think is the missing link in gender inclusivity efforts, like especially in like the younger generation, for example, in schools or even in uh, homes or the workspace? Like, what's the missing link? I think the younger generation themselves
1: are often the ones who are pioneering, are often the ones who are reaching out and trying to create these spaces a lot of the time. So, I think there's a lot of bureaucratic red tape that exists in the form of adults, of teachers, of parents, of of administrative people in school who pressure this kind of stress. There exists a lot of sort of bureaucratic pressure on young people with these ideas. Like I I know when I was in undergrad, I, I tried to have this whole comprehensive sexuality education workshop in my college. It went over well. So that as a process I realized while working with like 18 to 21 year olds, people who you think would have working with 18 to 21 year olds in a comprehensive sexuality education sort of framework, I realized that a lot of things that maybe we take for granted in um, acknowledging key, okay, you know, that people would know that there is uh, something beyond a gender binary. people would know uh, stuff about sexuality, people would know stuff about gender. Very basic assumptions that I think I'd gone in with at that point is something that I found myself challenging again and again, seeing that people are coming from various different spaces. So I think one is the uh, people who are coming in who are wanting to challenge stereotypes are of course, like I said, uh, being challenged by authorities. Another is just, where do you start, right? Especially, that's why I, when you said this thing about including in schools, including at younger ages, I so strongly believe that because as, uh, not that, you know, you can't start at an older age, but there is a sort of a baseline that you have to set up. There is a lot more work that goes into it. I feel sometimes that putting in that effort, putting in that work can sometimes be too much for people maybe. That might be a reason people might not want to start these conversations with their grandparents or start these conversations with adults around them because they feel like, oh, you know, it won't just be one conversation. It will be a lot of conversations, which is true. But if we don't have those conversations now, then when will we have them?
0: Yeah, that is true, because I feel like even for me to bring up these conversations with people from my grandparents' age, it's like the foundations are completely different, right? Like what's, what's normal for me and what's what I accept is going to be very different from them because of how they were brought up and the society that they were brought up Absolutely. in. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess people are just afraid to question what's considered different and mm. the people who are identifying as such, they, like, don't know where to find support.
1: Yeah, no, that's also so true, like not knowing where to find support, not knowing where to find resources. But I think that is something that's changing. Little by little, I see that there are a lot of really beautiful resources coming out uh, on the internet, on Instagram pages, mostly, you know, which is so accessible for so many young people. I think the accessibility of information is also something that's changing and evolving over time. And I think that is also making a huge difference to how people are learning about all of this
0: now. Absolutely. So um, in earlier times, chemical castration treatments was used to get rid of homosexuality. Mm-hmm. And today there exist several conversion therapies, right? So though we think it is a thing of the past, do parents come to you asking to help in inverted comhas their children who might identify as homosexuals and if so, do you ever feel the need to counsel the parents in these situations?
1: Mm. Um, Thankfully, up until now, I have not had any parents come to me for, like you said, quote-unquote help in this scenario. Um, I've mostly had relatively accepting parents, you know, people who may not understand as such, but also are not here to, you know, put their children to conversion therapy and are open to, like you said, counseling or open to uh, me talking to them or... the. Or the person's child and I talking to them together. So I think, firstly, I really, really hate the term conversion therapy because it is not a therapy of any sort. And of course, the fact that it exists is just horrifying and continues to be horrifying. But I think, again, it also, like, while I say that, I also want to sort of give a disclaimer that I work in a space which is more inclusive to begin with, which maybe caters to a part of society that might come to a point where they're more aware already or may have been educated about all of this to begin with, right? So maybe the reason that I personally have not met any parents like this is not because they don't exist, but because maybe I'm not dealing with, you know, all kinds of parents from all walks of the population. I think that um if and when I encounter such parents, I would definitely, uh, rather than, of, co- of course, I would meet uh, the child because clearly if their parents are coming from a space where they feel like, you know, they, their child needs to be changed, then the child will need support. But more importantly, I think it would be so, so important to engage the parents and just look at these beliefs and understand them and maybe challenge them slowly. So I think that's all the questions we have for today. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for these super insightful questions. I think really wonderful to see and it's such a wonderful initiative that you guys have taken up.
0: Thank you so much. That's great to hear, honestly. If anyone listening would like to reach out to Sanjana Mishra personally, you can contact her through the website www.childrenfirstindia.com. Her Instagram handle is Sanjana mishra 28 At PsychPod, we have outlets where anyone can ask questions on the chosen topics which we filter and incorporate in our podcast episodes. You can follow us on Instagram or email us. The details are in the description. Thank you for tuning in. Stay tuned for more updates and episodes.